0: Our Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the Book of the Prophet Isaiah, Isaiah fifty-nine, beginning at verse fourteen. We'll be reading to verse twenty-one this evening, which is also the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord: Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is Latin, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his salvation upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repaying to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall hear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun; for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord: My Spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth. Shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Here I write with the old covenant reading. The new covenant reading is taken from a letter to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 20. We'll be reading to verse 28 this evening, which is also at the end of the chapter. This may seem like a very abrupt place to begin New Covenant kind of reading, but you'll discover if you go back and read all of Hebrews chapter 7, which I encourage you to do. It is one consistent meditation on Psalm 110. You'll uh, discover even reading, reading the entire chapter, verse 20 appears rather abruptly in the text. Hebrews chapter 7 beginning in verse 20. The word of our God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, Those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for His own sins and then for the sins of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of those which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is better It would be easy and enjoyable enough for us to simply spend an evening meditating upon all the ways in which Jesus Christ is better than anything else, better than anything the world can promise us, better than all other religious systems. Jesus is better. But the author of Hebrews is not engaging in abstract bit of Christology as he sits in a monastery library. He's dealing with a crisis the author of Hebrews is dealing with the crisis that some Jewish Christians are being tempted to leave the Christian church in order to return to Judaism. And that very idea is so strange to us, we ought to pause for a moment and wonder, why is that so? I mean, we don't have Christians today thinking, for the most part, about going back to Judaism. Why did be so profoundly tempted as Jewish Christians to return to trying to worship God according to the old covenant ways and law. Well, we live in a time when Christianity has become the largest religion in the world. Over 20 centuries, Christians have built great cathedrals and great universities. Uh, The body of Christian literature that's actually worth reading is so vast that no one human being could possibly leave it all. And in America at least, there really isn't any pressure any pressure to abandon Christianity in general. The pressure only shows up when you, out of your desire to actually follow Jesus in all the details of his word, actually put those details into practice. But it's simply where the name of Christian, still in America, is an honorable thing to do. Uh, that's most of the Supreme Court justices in the United States identify themselves as being Christians. Most of the members of the United States Congress are at least nominally Christian. There's not a lot of persecution, and therefore there's not a lot to lose simply by continuing to identify with Christ's Church. It wasn't like this in the middle of the first century. Judaism already had 1,800 years of tradition, it had highly educated rabbis, a vast network of synagogues, a temple complex that was one of the wonders of the ancient world in terms of its striking beauty. And both Jews and Christians freely acknowledged that the Old Testament ceremonial laws, as well as the Old Testament priesthood, had been established by God. You see what that Jewish Christians in the first century might be tempted to go back and to embrace that big, majestic, beautiful system rather than gather with 18 or 20 people in somebody's house to worship Jesus according to the way. Now, members of secular churches, whether in the Netherlands or the Free Church of Scotland or even our own Orthodox Presbyterian Church, in a very small way, can you get a little bit of a taste of this? Uh, you know, you go to uh, visit a church and it's a 3,000-member-plus stone building. It's beautiful.
1: They have a magnificent
0: choir. They have a beautiful organ with a professional organist. And it all seems so well-established and polished. But besides that, going and studying in a prestigious school like Princeton Theological Center, for you're to get this, well, that has certain attractions to it that going to some backwater school in Jackson, Mississippi, or back in Indiana doesn't have. And then you return back home to come to our church, where we worship in the elementary school cafeteria. And you get maybe just a little bit of a tongue that says, I wonder if there's some way that I can hold on to all those trappings of wealth and institutional success and still hold on to my faith. In Jesus Christ. Well, as I say, that's only a, a very small, small view of the temptation our Jewish brothers and sisters from 20 centuries ago have felt. But when you feel that temptation, you need to say the very thing that of Hebrews explains Jesus is better. Nevertheless, we ought to acknowledge that it's easier to sin. Let goods and kindred go than it is to actually watch goods and kindred go. Furthermore, there was a lot more at stake for these Jewish Christians than there is for us worshiping a area. Judaism had significant legal advantages and acceptance and protection throughout the Roman Empire. Christianity did not. And they must have thought it isn't as though we are in any way abandoning the Lord our God. I mean that we're not of But the Lord, after all, is the one who established this system of worship, the priesthood, the temple, and so on. We're just going to worship the Lord in the old tried and true method rather than this new fended method that is being taught to us by the apostles. Do you feel the Paul? Do, do you understand that this is why people can be attracted to doing that? Plus, there was an extended network of family members who, for generations, have been worshiping God this way, were all coming on them to come back. While we don't face exactly the same challenges, we are all still going to be confronted throughout our lives with whether or not we are going to seek the kingdom of God first, or we're simply going to be doing enough to be a as though we're respectable members of the Church, while we actually seek other things first. Where our hearts are divided, where they're somewhat often not worship to God, but our hearts are also seeking the praise of men, the pleasures of this world. We are going to face those temptations until the day the Lord calls us home. The author of Hebrews has a message for us. The message is not focused on how much we need to miss out on in order to follow Jesus. That is not the message. Jesus does tell us at times, you need to count the cost. That is not the message of the author of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews simply says, Jesus is better. Jesus is so much better that those things that you're going to lose out on aren't even worth mentioning by comparison. If the entire universe were put on one side of the balance scale, you know those balance scales you put weights on each side and you kind of figure out how they're going to go. If you put the entire universe on one side of the scale and you put Almighty God on the other side, it would be as though the universe didn't exist. It would exert so little pressure on that scale compared to the weightiness of Almighty God the Creator of heaven and earth is infinitely more valuable than everything else that He has created. Isn't that precisely what Isaiah tells us when he writes this? Before Him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by Him as worthless and less than nothing. And yet the Apostle Paul has told us this in Colossians. The Son He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God is pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Beloved, Jesus Christ is greater than we can wrap our minds around. And He is not only infinitely great in Himself, but in Him He has reconciled us to God and given us everything that we ever need and is committed to giving us things that are beyond the wildest of our imaginations as He makes us joint heirs with Him in His eternal kingdom. Jesus is exceedingly better than anything that the world could offer us, or that we can even imagine. This evening we're going to be focusing on how Christ's priesthood is so much better than the Levitical priesthood. And this has very practical ramifications for us, even though, quite frankly, none of us is tempted to go back into Judaism. We will look at tonight's passage under four main headings. First, Christ's priesthood is permanent. Second, Christ is a perfect human priest. Third, Christ offers a better sacrifice. And fourth, Christ is a loyal priest. Let me give those to you again. Christ's priesthood is permanent. Christ is a perfect human priest. Christ offers a better sacrifice, and Christ is a royal priest. We begin with the fact that Christ's priesthood is permanent. This contrasts with the Levitical priesthood, which was temporary and transient by design. Look at verses 20 through 22 with me. Verses 20 through 22 and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The Levitical priesthood was provisional, by design. It was established as part of the ceremonial law, which pointed forward to the coming of Christ. Uh, this doesn't it have no value. If you were to look back up a few verses, you're going to see the author of Hebrews saying things about the Jewish ceremonial law being useless. He doesn't mean they were useless when they were connected to Jesus Christ. He means they're useless in themselves. The fact that the Levitical priesthood was provisional does not mean it had no value. It had great value because of the sacramental union between the sign and the thing it signified. We, of course, experience this in the Lord's Supper. It's not still so brand and wine we're going to do anything for you. But by God's authority and grace, he has chosen to unite that sign to Christ himself. So that as we receive these elements in faith, we receive Jesus Christ and all the promised blessings of God in him. That's how the sacraments work in the Old Testament as well. As Old Testament believers receive the Old Covenant sacraments in faith, they truly receive Jesus Christ and the blessings of the covenant of grace. Yet this leads us to an absolutely essential point. If the people whom the author of Hebrews is writing to really do turn away from Jesus Christ, they may imagine that they're going back into old covenant Judaism, but they are doing nothing of the kind. Right? If you go back to the sacramental signs, but you cut them off from Christ, They have become worthless. In fact, they have become worse than useless. They become forms of a man-made religion. To go through the outward motions without Christ is idolatry. This is a very important truth. Frankly, it's become very unpopular to say in our own way. One of the things that happened in New Testament studies and it spread throughout all Christianity with the um, advent of the Holocaust in World War II, is this appalling tragedy of 6 million Jews being killed in Germany has made everybody super sensitive to say anything that could be taken as being critical of any Jew at any time, anywhere. But that's not what we read when we read the New Testament. Many Christians imagine that our Jewish neighbors are engaged in worshiping God according to the Old Testament. But that's a mistake. It's a mistake for two reasons. First of all, most of your Jewish friends aren't really that interested in the Old Testament. If you talk to them, they're going to talk to you about more recent Jewish history, the Holocaust. We're talking about Zionism and what's going on in Israel. But even though Jews now have deep interest in the Old Testament, if they cut off the signs what what be pointed forward to, that is Jesus Christ, they are engaging in side They are not engaging in Old Testament biblical religion the way that God Himself had established it. As Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews in his own day, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how do you believe my words? See, a person who rejects Jesus Christ is by definition an unbeliever. As Jesus makes clear, by reject- rejecting Jesus, a person has neither the Father nor the Son. Such a person is not practicing Old Testament religion, no matter what they say. At least that Old Testament religion is intended by God. For the Old Testament required faith, everything is much as the new. For a person to leave Christianity and attempt to worship God in the old way is actually to walk naked before a holy God, utterly unclothed with any righteousness. It is to make clear that he or she is without hope and without God in this world. The Old Testament priesthood was provisional by design and it was only a means of grace because it was connected to the permanent priesthood of Christ who was to come. So the author of Hebrews says, And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest. Forever. What's the point of the oath? Well, there are really two big issues in terms of God taking oaths. In some places in the Old Testament, we see the Lord taking oaths not because His word is in question, but because He wants to give us assurance. And God being so gracious is actually willing to swear oaths to His people, so that we will know that He is for us. Isn't God good? Of course, we see him doing that in particular with Abraham. God, of course, cannot not lie, but such an oath is graciously given for our benefit. Turns out that the oath spoken of in Psalm 110, where Hebrews is quoting, does in fact indirectly help with our assurance. But it is important to see that this is not an oath made directly to us. God is not swearing an oath to us so that we will gain assurance. God is swearing an oath to Jesus Christ. The oath is, you are a priest forever, and the order order among his Now, it isn't that common when people enter in positions of special trust, president of the United States, judges, ministers of the gospel, elders, that those people entering into the position They take an oath. Uh, They swear, seeking God's help, that they will faithfully discharge the duties of the office in which they are about to enter. Please don't make the mistake of thinking that's what's going on here. Jesus Christ, the great high priest, is not the one taking the oath. Almighty God is taking the oath to Jesus that Jesus will have this office. So, what exactly is going on? Well, first we should notice that the Lord swears that Jesus will be a high priest forever. This puts them in an entirely different category than the Levitical priesthood and the individual Levitical priest. The individual Levitical priests were obviously temporary, for each one of them grows old and dies. And that's the point the author of Hebrews is making. We just look down to verses 23 through 25. Then look there with me beginning at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives. To make intercession for them. Because Christ's priesthood is permanent, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So, a person placing the confidence in a Levitical priest, even the best Levitical priest in the entire land, has a problem. And a couple years later, you have to replace Or maybe it's a decade later. You know, we have this problem actually just the you know, old professionals. Our own life—they get older, and all of a sudden you've got to find a new doctors, new accountants, some new dentists, and so on. They retire. They don't retire. Eventually, they're going to die. That was true of the Levitical priests. They were by definition temporary. They needed to keep being replaced, and therefore, you could never place your confidence wholly in one of them. But Jesus will never die again. He ever lived to intercede for us, and therefore he is able to save us to the everlasting. There wouldn't be any Levitical priests around, however, throughout much of the Old Testament period. We often make the mistake of assuming when we say Old Testament, we think right away about the Mosaic period. But we should realize that both has a beginning and an end. Abraham, after all, did not have a Levitical priesthood. Uh, Levi is his great-grandson. And it wouldn't be until Levi's descendants, many, many centuries later, more than 400 years later, would actually be ordained to be a Levitical priest. So we should realize they are not necessary for the people of God, because Abraham, the father of the did not have a Levitical priesthood. The priesthood has a beginning, and by design, it also has an end. Yet, as Christians, we have a mediator who ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is better. But second, one of the places where the Lord Himself takes oaths is when He establishes covenants. We're going to see the context here. That seems to be something that's in view. God takes oaths when he establishes a covenant. With Abraham, he did it again with the Mosaic Covenant. He does it again with David. The Lord takes oaths in establishing his covenant, and this comes quite squarely in verse 22, where we are told that God's oath makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. What I want to suggest to you this evening is that covenant that a better down in Torah is not the new covenant per se. It's actually the covenant of grace that undergirds all the other administrations of the covenant. That Jesus, in fact, is the eternal great high priest for all the elect who will ever live. I hate to have to hint at this a bit, because I can't be overly dogmatic. But I am telling you something that is consistent with some of the best public theologians of our own day. I think that we have more than a hint of the covenant of redemption here. That is the intra trin- trinitarian covenant where the persons of the Trinity come together, as it were, and they make a commitment a covenant among themselves to redeem and elect people. And in this commitment, the Son is selected to be the mediator who will give his life to the life of the world by taking to himself a true human nature. And he is going to be that mediator for all time. And if that's right, we in fact should draw great assurance from this. Because the author of Hebrews is bringing us right into the inner workings of God himself and the three persons of the Trinity. So that we know that this mediator is the mediator for everyone whom God will ever choose.
1: Here's a simple, but I think a fairly
0: critical question for us to ask. For whom does Jesus serve as the Great High Priest? i to kind of raise that question for you. For whom does Jesus serve as the Great High Priest? I want to suggest it's not just New Covenant Christians. But it is in fact that Jesus is the great high priest of anyone who ever gets saved. After all, nobody in the Old Testament is saved apart from the sacrifice of Christ, and the Levitical priesthood, as it were, is a system put over the top of Christ's priesthood. It's all applications to the degree that Christ is undergirding the work of mediation. It isn't the reality itself. It's an intermediary that uh, God graciously uses to bring people to that reality. Jesus exercised his priesthood through intermediaries, that is the Levitical priest, who pointed forward to the one who was to come. Now, why would anybody want to go back to the intermediaries now that you can have direct access to the one great high priest? Christ Himself. That makes no sense. Jesus, after all, is far better. In fact, those intermediaries, apart from Christ, are useless to us. Of course, that raises an important question. Someone might have thought when I go and talk to a Levitical priest about my temptation and sin,
1: he understands
0: me. He's able to sympathize with me in my weakness. Is Jesus, this mediator to tell me he's better, is he able to do that as well? Does he understand both my sin and my weakness as well as this Levitical priest does? And the glorious answer to that question is yes and no. And both parts are important. Back in chapter 4, the author of Hebrews gave us the first half of this glorious truth. He writes, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without saving. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. We do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our witnesses, because Jesus Christ is a true man, tempted like us in every way. That's a great encouragement. But that's not enough. And so the author of Hebrews actually, even in chapter 4, begins to hit the second part of it. He's unlike us. He's glorious to unlike us. Yet without sin. See, I'm a fellow sinner with you. If you come to me and you confess your sins, I can sympathize with your sins, temptations you have that you've given into when you have fallen into sin, but I can't do anything about it. Elder Bacon can sympathize with you in your weakness and temptations, but he cannot put away your sin. Elder Cameron can sympathize with you in all your weakness and temptation, but he cannot put away your sins. Instead of being able to offer ourselves in your place, each of us needs a Savior of our own. Thankfully, the author of Hebrews adds three key words. Jesus was in every respect, being tempted as we are, yet without sin. And that's what he's driving at in chapter 7, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. See, Jesus is better because he has a permanent priesthood, but Jesus is better because he has a perfect person. He is the perfect person, and we need that if we are going to be saved. Jesus is better than the Levitical priest. Because although he fully sympathizes with our temptations, he is wholly innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heaven. He is a better priest because he is a better human being. This fits naturally with the fact that Jesus is a better priest because he offered up a better sacrifice. Look at verse 27 with me. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. See, so We see Christ's superiority from the fact that unlike the Aaronic priesthood, Jesus never had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. Yet there is something else of profound importance that we need to see. Not only did the Levitical high priests have to offer up sacrifices for themselves and for the sins of the people, they had to keep doing it. Those sacrifices never put away sin. You know, the the temple is actually described as the house of God, to where God dwelt in the midst of His people. And for a house that had a very strange lack of a particularly important piece of furniture, There was not a single chair in the temple complex where the priests could sit down after they had finished their work. The the architecture of the temple is telling us they're never going to be done. They have to keep doing this because their sacrifices that they are offering do not put an end to our sin. And yet Jesus Christ, once He offered Himself up, once and for all time, He cried out, it is finished. And then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty that is on God. As faithful Jews drew near to the temple, they should have rightly rejoiced that the Lord's provision for their sin is by faith they participated in the old covenant sacramental system, looking forward to the Lamb of God who would one day take away the sin of the world. But the very fact that they had to keep coming back made clear that the types and shadows did not in themselves accomplish what in the fullness of time Jesus Christ would accomplish on behalf of his people. When Jesus Christ offered himself up for his people, our Lord declared, It is finished. And then he sat down. The author of Hebrews is saying, Why do you want to go back to those priests and to those sacrifices that don't actually put away your sin, when you have come to Jesus Christ, the one who already has? The ceaseless activity of the old priest is shouting a simple and powerful message to all of us – Jesus Christ is better. Why is Jesus better? Christ's priesthood is permanent. Christ is a perfect human priest, and Christ offers a better sacrifice, one that actually and permanently puts away your guilt. Nevertheless, the author of Hebrews has one more thing that he wants us to see. Look at verse 28 with me. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. We are reminded of the difference between the provisional priesthood appointed by the ceremonial law and the permanent high priest appointed forever by an oath from the Almighty God. But what I want you to see is that the Lord is appointing not merely a human, but a son. If you're looking at the ESV, you'll notice it capitalizes. The Son to be our High Priest. Jesus Christ is both the Son of David and the Son of Almighty God. Both categories, kind of He's a royal priest. The Levitical priests, by definition, were not kings. Jesus Christ is a royal priest to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. And so, when He intercedes on your behalf with the Father, He has the most intimate relationship possible with the one he's interceding with. He is the eternally beloved and eternally begotten son of the one who's interceding with under the death. But as the royal son, he is also the one to whom all authority in heaven on earth has been given. He is capable of bringing to pass whatever needs to be done for you in this world. This makes good sense for the full quotation makes clear that not simply is Jesus a priest forever, but he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who is both the king and the priest of Salem. As the Son of God, your mediator has the closest possible relationship to his Father as he intercedes on your behalf. As the king of kings and lord of lords, he has absolute authority to conquer all of his. And all of your enemies. Beloved, why would you seek intercession from anyone else? <laughs> Whoever they are, Jesus is better. Well, thankfully, you none know, of us here at we are really going to be tempted to go to Judaism. I think that's really just unthinkable. Or for that matter, I doubt any of you be tempted to pursue any other religion. Yet please consider this in your own part, Marlon. We are not made of stone. We will all be tempted every day of our lives to find our hope, our peace, or the solution to our problems in someone or something other than Jesus. The message of Hebrews is therefore for each of us, and it is for all of us. Jesus is better as we are about to sing, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is Lord, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me, says depart. Why do we desire to seek our peace anywhere else? For wherever else we look, Jesus is there.
1: Amen.